Uh, but we're going to go ahead and open with prayer and get started. Lord, thank you for today. Thank you for the message that you have prepared for us, Lord. I pray that you continue to refine us and to grow us and to convict us into the men that only you can make us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Now, for those of you, raise your hand if you were not here last week and you're new to the Bible study. Okay, so so not not many. That's well, so, Gil, you're not new. But anyway, so uh, we're we're actually in. Uh, you know, usually in this Bible study, most of you who have, who have been to it some, but some of you may be the first time. Uh, we go through everything. We go through books. We go through books of the Bible. Uh, matter of fact, we just finished going through Acts and going through Romans and going through James. And now we're kind of jumping over and now doing a book with a little more life application. Uh, and we'd love for you to stay with us. Uh, we do this year-round here at noon. Uh, on uh, and, and if you missed last week, the first chapter of Finishing Strong by Steve Farrar, I would encourage you, I, I know I said before, and I kind of got, in, in my accountability group, I kind of got held accountable that they disagreed with me. And they said, I think you're wrong telling people not to worry about getting the book because the book is so beneficial, and I'm not going to cover every aspect of the book, and there's going to be a few tidbits that may be helpful to you that I may not cover that you're going to miss if you don't have the book. And if you can't find hard copies of Finishing Strong by Steve Farrar, you can get it on the e-books. I know I think it's like $13. You can get it right to your phone or your tablet relatively easy. So I would encourage you to get the book, as I stand corrected for being a little more flippant about that than I should have been. Uh, but uh, but but get that. So if you missed chapter one, it really I can set it up and not not a big deal. You can go back and listen to it anytime you miss a Bible study. You can get it on the Rick and Bubba podcast channel, and that's free. You can get it on our YouTube channel, that's free, uh, and you can go back and listen to that, or you can see it on our social media platforms. Uh, Adler and I'll put that out if you follow me on Twitter or the show on Twitter or Facebook page, it'll be there as well. If you ever want to go back to old series that you may have missed and you'd love to go back and walk through some of those, BurgessMinistries.com, click on Media. BurgessMinistries.com, click on Media, and you can go back all the way back to a couple of years' worth of Bible studies that are there. Uh, and you can find a lot of those on the podcast channel too, but I know they're all at BurgessMinistries.com by clicking on Media. So if I was to sum up last week, we're talking about that sadly very few men, and really women for that matter, human beings, finish well or finish strong. Now, if you don't think God wants this Bible study done this time with all of us, any of you that are members of my home church and uh, know what I'm about to say, but those of you that don't go to our church, guess what our message was this past Sunday? And we had a guest speaker. It wasn't even our pastor, as if, you know, maybe he'd grabbed it from here. This was a guest speaker finishing up a Crave weekend, or some people call it D-Now weekend kind of thing, and he'd been with our youth all weekend. Brent Crow, who we interviewed right here when he first put out his book, Chasing Elephants, and uh, and first time I met him, and I loved that book and, and, and was impressed with him that day. He's gone on and is major league involved in student leadership, leadership university uh, and, uh, and is, speaks everywhere, all over the country, all over the world. And his message was finishing well. And I thought, well, I looked at Sherry. I just wrote finishing well and circled it. And I said, you think God's trying to, trying to drive, us, drive this point home? And he, here's, a, here's one right here, guys. And there's one right here and there's one right back there. Uh, and so I think this is important because it, it last week, as Steve told us, God is not looking for starters. He's looking for finishers. Anybody can start, but very few people finish. As a matter of fact, the surveys, and we'll get into more of it in this chapter, uh, came to the conclusion that one out of ten men, uh, when we talk about ministry, we're not talking about just vocational ministry. We're talking about everybody who claims to be a follower of Jesus Christ, 
Will that person finish well? Now, what does that look like? That, that doesn't necessarily mean we're talking about that your name is on some building or you had some great accomplishment for the kingdom or you went into some vocational ministry or you started an orphanage. Certainly all those things can be great. What this whole book is about is every single person who claims the name of Jesus Christ, do you die the way the Apostle Paul died, one of the few who finished well, saying that I, 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 I never compromised Jesus, I had no giant moral failure, I didn't leave the faith, I didn't change the faith, I was devoted to Jesus Christ after he justified me, I was continued to be sanctified, I was continued to be refined, I was, I was, I was going, uh, you know, I was committed to holiness, and when I finished, I was the husband he said I should be. I was the father he said I should be. I was the son he said I should be. I was the, the disciple he said I should be. And I was doing what he told me to do all the way to my earthly death or his return. That's what finishing well and finishing strong is. I don't want you to get in your mind it's a bunch of accomplishments or accolades. Uh, certainly on earth, if that comes, fine. But, but that's not what we're doing. It is, am I devoted to Jesus Christ until my death or his return? Yes or no? And, and that's really what it's about. And, and, and uh, through the surveys in the first, the question that we now start this one on is Steve Farrar asked the question, if it comes down to it that it's only one out of ten, or if you look at when God was trying to give the promised land, it became two out of twelve of the, of the leaders of all the tribes, not just somebody that he grabbed happenstance out of the tribes. He said, send me your best men, and of those twelve, only two of them said, I'll finish. I'll do what you said we're going to do. God, I think you are who you said you are. So based on those numbers, he asked this question to kind of wrap up chapter one. What makes you and me think that we're the one or the two? Why aren't we the ten or the nine? What are we doing differently that would mean that we're going to be the one or the two out of twelve or the one out of ten that's going to finish strong? Why? Why do we think we're not going to fall away? So now he gets into some of the application in chapter 2, and he starts off with a quote from Charles Spurgeon. He said, Beware of no man more, or no more a man than yourself. We carry our worst enemies within us. And I have found that to be absolutely 100% true. Most of the problems that have been entered into my life were self-made. And when I get up every day and I pray, Lord, Protect me from my biggest enemy, myself. You know, you think about this. We've talked about this scene before. We talked about it in our study of the book of James, for those of you that were with us. James says most of the sin has nothing to do with the devil at all. It has nothing to do with Satan. It has nothing to do with demons. It has to do with your own sinful desires. Your flesh is enticed by sin, and that's why you fall. We've said before, Satan, this is not Star Wars. There, 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 there's not yin and yang. Satan is not the opposite of God. Lucifer was created by God. He's a very high-ranking angel, and, uh, but he is created by God, and the drop from God down to Satan is a gigantic drop. Certainly, we don't want to battle Satan without Jesus. If the archangel Michael in the book of Jude said he would not go and battle Satan for Moses' body without Jesus, we probably don't need to either. But the fact remains, Satan is not omniscient. He's not omnipresent. He's not omnipotent. God is. Satan isn't, which means... He can't be everywhere at all times. He has a third of the angels. I don't know that number. It still may be a big number, but it's still only a third. Two-thirds are still with God. And you know what? They're not around us all the time. What usually is our problem is just ourselves. Because I got, I got news for you. 
That army is spending time on the front lines. If you ever want to find out where they are, just go stand uh, at, right in the middle of old Jerusalem, and you can feel them everywhere. Uh, but, but most of us, the problem that we run into is our own problem. So he said, so there, there was research that was being done on leaders. And, of course, when you talk about leaders, we're talking about everybody in here, okay? And you say, well, well I'm not a leader at my workplace. We're not talking about that. You may be, but are you a leader in your home? Yes. So everybody in here who has a family, you're a leader. Everybody in here who is in a group of people, and maybe you don't have a family yet, but you desire to have a family, you're preparing to be a leader, or if you claim you, by the name of Jesus Christ, you may be a leader within that group. But this room, and everybody listening and watching this, in some way, shape, or form, most everybody in here is a leader of some type. And we'll get into the definition of a leader later in the book. So the Bible mentions, I didn't know this, over a thousand leaders, some well-known, uh, some barely a mention, but in 1982, Dr. Robert, Robert Clinton said he was going to devote his entire ministry to the study of leadership. And he studied 900 leaders over 13 years. Now, these were leaders in Scripture. These were leaders of our church history. Some of them just contemporary leaders. And then he had to reduce the 900 down to 100 prominent leaders. And of the 100, 100 leaders, then Clinton found that Scripture really only provided enough information to make a call on how they finished to 49. So he said there were 49 people after all this deduction that he got down to, and he said he noticed of the 49 that he could document enough Scripture to see how they finished. He found there were four kinds of finishes that are relevant to our study. He said it really goes into, there, there, there's, there's four ways that this thing happens uh, for, for all of us. And, um, and he said, there is, of course, they cut off early. That means something tragic happened. The person's life was not very long. They, they died in some way or they were destroyed in some way, and we never saw really how they finished. That's cut off early, never really got out of the gate. The other, he said, were those that were easy to understand, those who finished poorly. And then he said the other category was finished so-so. They did all right. They weren't great, but they did all right. And then, of course, the goal finished well. So he said, Names really don't matter. He said, if you don't know all the names that are mentioned in these different categories, that's not important. What's important is the category and what that category means to us. So let's look first about cut off early. That means they were taken out of leadership. This would include assassinations, killed in battle. Uh, they, they were denounced by, by, by prophecy. They were overthrown. Some examples of these cut off early include Samson, uh, Absalom, Ahab, Josiah, John the Baptist, uh, James, John and James. Some of these men were good leaders, but most of them were bad. And it says, but they were cut off early. And he says, if you know somebody in your mind that's come to your mind right now and you think well, this person meets that category, it's likely that there's a tragic story that explains their finish. So this is, we just didn't get a lot of, we don't have a big sample on what they did. Uh, you know, all these things happened. We didn't know that much about them. So he said, then next, there's finished poorly. This means they were going downhill in the latter part of their lives. This might mean in terms of their personal relationship with God or in terms of competency for the kingdom or both. Some who are typical examples of finishing poorly include Gideon, that may surprise you, Eli, Saul, Solomon. That's one of the scariest things I heard a guy say to me who was a follower of Christ of the day that he says, well, I see Donald Trump like it's our Saul. And I said, well, I wish you wouldn't say that. <laughs> that, that was actually what God didn't want them to do. And, uh, and then he let them experience a little success for a little while. Then they regretted that decision when Saul became a disaster. 
But anyway, I, I, I even questioned him. I said, certainly you mean something else. Solomon finished poorly. In other words, these are guys who were barely able to crawl across the finish line, either that or they were carried across the line. And this is, of course, the category that we want to what? Avoid. Now, I want you to think about that. So what we just heard is we don't want to be like, as far as the way they finished, Gideon, Eli, Saul, not, not Saul who became Paul, King Saul, and Solomon. Now, think about those names, prominent in the Bible. We don't want to be like that because they finished poorly. And, uh, and so they, they, they had some great moments, but they, they, didn't, they didn't come all the way to the line. Then there's finishing so-so. That means they did not do what they could have done or should have done. Now, I want you to think about that. So finishing so-so means you finished okay, but you know what you did? You underperformed. You didn't finish as well as with everything you'd been given you should have. You, you, ever, you ever have that? Is there anything that sadder than people that don't live up to expectations? People have all these great accolades about them. They think they're going to do so great. They have so much potential, and we'll get to this in a minute. There's a great, great word on that in this, this chapter. And everybody sits around and says, you ever, you ever watch the uh, uh, 30 for 30 on Marcus Allen? Not Marcus Allen, Marcus Dupree. On Marcus Dupree, really sad story. Probably the greatest running back ability-wise that college football and, and professional football uh, has ever seen as far as talent but he, he, he got into trouble, he, he had issues, he, he couldn't overcome them, and he, he is a sad story of someone who really underperformed, never really showed us their potential. There were flashes of it, flashes of it, freshman year, even some of the things that happened that I didn't remember, he did professional football in the USFL, flashes of greatness, uh, but, uh, but they, they did not, they finished kind of so-so, they kind of underperformed. And he said, now the list that includes that, he says, these are people that did not complete what God had for them to do. This might mean there were some negative ramifications maybe from their past that lingered on even though they were talking with or walking with God personally. Uh, at the end of their lives, there were examples of those that finished so-so, and this may surprise you. But we're going to talk more about David later in the book, and it won't surprise you so much. He puts David in the category of someone who finished so-so. And I, I hear men try to go to David a lot. And they usually go to David because they want to for somehow say, even though they've done something horrible and they've done some terrible sin, that David was forgiven of that. So, they, they, you, know, I, I, you know, look what happened with David. Well, I got news for you. David is in the finished so-so category. So if David is your goal of the kind of man you want to be, you're shooting low on the way he finished. He did not finish well or strong. He finished so-so. Talking about the finish. We're not talking about there's moments where he was certainly great. And his repentant heart is something that we should look at as an example. When he finally came to the conclusion that he sinned against God, not just against Uriah and not just against Bathsheba, he had actually sinned against God. But if you look at his life, he started taking multiple wives and concubines long before he ever got to Bathsheba. So he was veering away from God long before that happened. And even in the latter part of his life were terrible ramifications for what he did. So I want to tell every man listening to this, watching this in this room, be real careful screaming you're a lot like David. You don't want to be like David. Now, if you want to be like the Apostle Paul, that'd be a great one. But I, I wouldn't make my goal David, okay? So anyway, um, and I think a lot of times we do because it's a much lower standard uh, than the Apostle Paul and others that get into the finish well category. So, uh, so the, he said, this is David, Je Jehoshaphat, uh, Hezekiah. He said, to put another spin on this, these were pretty good guys. He said, after all, as I mentioned, David was a man 
who was after God's own heart because of his repentance there in his moment of sin and the Psalms where he's lamenting and he's humbled and he's crying out to God. All that's wonderful, but David really didn't finish strong. David actually finished somewhere in the middle of the pack. I don't, ever, I don't know a man worth anything that their goal is middle of the pack. Is it really, has anybody set that goal? Can you imagine sitting across from your son or daughter and you said, well, what, how do you think you're going to do for the kingdom? Yeah, middle of the pack. That, is that our goal, really, middle of the pack? But if it is, that's probably what you'll achieve. Uh, but anyway, so then finish well. That means that they were walking with God, and this is the key to what finish well means. They were walking with God personally at the end of their lives. They were strong in their faith, and they were close to God all the way home. Okay? And that's what finishing well. He says some of those men who finished well, he said, uh, would be men like Abraham, Job, Joseph. We talked about Joshua and Caleb last week. Samuel, Elijah, Jeremiah, Daniel, John, Paul, Peter. That's where we want to be. So I, if I were you guys in here and, and ladies who may be watching and listening, because, you know, it, it, the gender here doesn't matter. It, what matters is the way they live their lives out. There's certainly women in the Bible who also finish well. But what I would do, and this is what I'm going to do, okay, I would take everything before finish well, and I would take all those names, and I would remove them from my goal of how I want to finish, and I would just look at the all-star list of Abraham, Job, Joseph, Joshua, Caleb, Samuel, Elijah, Jeremiah, Daniel, John, Paul, and Peter, and say, you know what? That's where I'm going to concentrate on how to finish. The, all these other people offer us great things about life lessons, but we're talking about finishing. We're talking about how you finish strong, and that's what this study is about. If you want to get that part of your life right, these are the examples, not the others. Finishing. So we go on. So then he said all of these... Every name we mentioned were gifted and had very impressive strengths, but why didn't all of them finish strong? Because they did not survive ambushes. Getting through an ambush is what separates the men from the boys. And I say that figuratively. I mean, that's, that separates the finishing strong from the finishing poorly or the finishing so-so or the cutoff earlies. And sometimes the cutoff earlies, that, that, that is not as negative as it sounds. It means that their life just wasn't very long. So when we look at the ambushers, he says, now, if you want to survive an ambush, and all of us know this, you've got to anticipate the ambush. You've got to be smart enough and you've got to be wise enough to know what is coming, and you go, I can see a long way off. That's a problem, and so I'm not going to go anywhere near that. I'm not going to be pulled into that. Now, these ambushes will not surprise anybody because it, and we've said this in many Bible studies. One of you have already mentioned it to me. Was it you, me and you at lunch talking about this? Is that the adversary and our flesh has been giving, the adversary has been throwing up these same problems since the fall of mankind. Our flesh has been drawn to the same things since the fall. There's nothing new under the sun. If you, if you love sports analogies, and I certainly like them, it's like you're sitting there, and, and, and I think we've all been there before. If you ever were part of a team or you pulled for a team, and you see pretty soon in the game, and I've been on defense on this too, which is a terrible feeling, that I know there's certain things that the offense does that we can't defend it. And I just hope they won't do it. I remember one time when I was even coaching a Little League team, and Little League, I think sometimes these coaches trying to be, you know, Nick Saban or whatever, 
that are now Dabo Sweeney, but whatever they're trying to be is, is, well, I mean, let's face it. Those are the two names. Those are the two names. Those are the two names at the top of college football. Okay, they are. They're the standard. Okay, both of them are. But, but anyway, what I'm saying is this. They would outsmart themselves. Little League football is not that complicated. And so we were playing a team that had a running back that we couldn't stop. No way. It wasn't complicated. He would get the ball, run over our whole defense, and he'd score. So, so we would score, too. Their defense wasn't any good either. So it gets down to the end of the game. It is fourth and one from the one, and I say, if they give it to this guy, they win. They tried to trick us and give it to the fullback. Well, guess what our little young defense did? Oh, thank goodness, not the guy we can't tackle. Oh, and they covered up the fullback. We won the game. All they had to do was just give it to the guy that we couldn't tackle. But they, they, they started doing strategy, which might work in big-time football, but in Little League, just give it to the guy we can't tackle. So Satan knows, and the adversary knows, there are certain things I've always done that every man always falls for. And I get them the same way, and I've been getting them the same way since the fall. And guess what the first one is? The ambush of another woman. The second one, the ambush of money. The third one, the ambush of the neglected family. All of these things have destroyed men for as long as any of us can remember. And if you'll think in your mind either about yourself or about somebody you've seen fall, it's one of these three categories. Just about every single time. So, and some of you say, well, Rick, what about pride and arrogance? Well, all these apply to that. It's, a, it's still the same problem. It's just the specific pride and arrogance. So first of all, one of the things you have to think about, and I love the analogy Farrar uses in this chapter about risk insurance, risk management. Y'all know insurance is nothing but them running the numbers that you're going to give them more money than they have to give you. So what are you looking for? They're like preferred risk. What? We'll never have to give this guy money. So what is, what is it? Think about what insurance is. Here's car insurance. You know what you're saying? I bet I wrecked my car. You know what they're saying? We bet you won't. All right, you know what You know what medical insurance is? I bet I'm going to be really sick. You know what they say? We bet you won't. You know what life insurance is? You say, I, I bet you I'm going to die young, and they go, we bet you won't. <laughs> so, so really, it's all numbers. So, and, and, they're play, and that's nothing wrong with that. I mean, it's a necessary evil, and they got to make a living. And they're saying, what? We don't take bad risk. You know why? Because we're going to have to write a lot of checks. So what he said is, first of all, let's say for everybody in this room, or everybody listening or watching, let's say my insurance company, we want to protect against adultery. Are you high risk or preferred risk? Somebody comes over and says, look, you don't want to insure this guy. I can tell you, you're going to be paying that one. Or would he look at, or would the insurance company look at your life and my life and say preferred risk, preferred risk? They'll be paying us. Oh, we'll never, never have to pay them. He's not. He'll never cheat on his wife. And so that's really what he's talking about. Are you living a life in these three areas where you'd be high risk or preferred risk? And and would the insurance company want you and me as a client, or would they stay as far away from us as they possibly could? So the ambush of another woman. Y'all might remember from chapter one. Dr. Howard Hendricks, he interviewed 246 men who had had moral failure within a two-year period of time. All 246 had had a moral failure within a two-year period of time. All 246, just shy of 250, all got involved 
and sexual immorality involving another woman. Every single one of them. So when he looked at these men, he said, well, I guess I can do a study on sexual immorality and adultery because all 246 of them in ministry, that's why they failed. It was another woman. And he said he found that when he studied all of them, he saw four correlations. And this is important. If you have something to write on, write it down or forget the book and they'll be in there too. Listen to this. Of 246 that committed adultery against their, their spouse and single guys, what I would say to you is committed fornication outside of marriage. Same thing we apply to you. Okay, so I want you to listen to this. None, none, these were guys in ministry, vocational ministry. None of them were involved in any kind of personal accountability group, not one. So you know why the high-risk guys don't get in personal accountability groups? Because they know what's going to happen there. I've said it about this men's ministry that, that y'all, you guys are all participating in, and I, and, I, and I applaud you for that. And I had some things to say at, at Man Church for some of the guys that had showed back up because they, they liked the speaker, and our speaker did a great job and couldn't have done better, and it was a great night. I say nothing negative about the night. However, I've had people tell me, you know, because we'll talk, and we should do this. Look, we should do this. People say, we need to do a better job marketing the men's ministry. Let's get our ambassadors in the classes. Be sure, let's find where we don't have ambassadors. And we do need to do all that. Don't misunderstand me. But I told the, the men's group leadership, I said, but if I could just be the cold shower in the room. I don't think the problem that a lot of these men aren't coming is they don't know about it. They know about it. They won't know part of it because they know exactly what it's going to be like. And they don't desire to hear that. They don't, they're not ready to hear you know what they know they're going to hear? Things that will convict them and things that are going to force them to change. And you know what they've decided? I don't want to go there. I've had people say that people in their Sunday school class said, I don't want to go in there and get beat up. What, do, y'all, those of you that have been part of what we're doing in here and part of what we do at, at our church if you go there, does it feel like you're getting beat up? Or does it feel like you're being challenged? Does it feel like you're being confirmed sometimes, uh, convicted sometimes? I don't know about you, but it has completely changed my whole walk with Jesus. You know what I mean? Doing what I'm doing in here on Wednesdays has changed. I mean, I've gone to another place in my relationship with Jesus. You know why? Because I'm more devoted to him. I'm spending more time with him. I'm preparing. I'm in his word. And we're all getting in here and unpacking it on a regular basis. And that's paying dividends. You know why? That's the same thing about us. It says everything about him. So most of these guys drifted off to another woman, and they were not, hey, I'm in a severe accountability group. I mean, I'm talking about, I can barely breathe after what I just went through this weekend. First of all, I spent a day and a half with Rich Wingo. And I don't even like to duck hunt, and he made me. He said, we ain't worried about duck hunting. We probably won't even see a duck. Ducks aren't even flying. We're going to sit there for three hours in that duck blind, and we're going to hash it out. I kept hoping ducks would come. You know, something, (laughs) something to get me out of here, man. I'm backed into a corner. You know, so I had that. Then I leave that. I come home, get up. Brent Crow comes in, and he hammers us on finishing well. Then I go hear Patrick Nix on Sunday night. Guys, let me tell you something. I'm good. <laughs> but you know what? It was all wonderful. It wasn't something I hated. It was something I enjoyed. And, and, and I like knowing that if I'm going to be unfaithful to my wife or I'm going to do anything that steps me outside of the authority of Christ, I got men standing there say, get your butt back under the authority of Jesus. What are you doing? You idiot. And they asked me very hard questions. But see, these people didn't have that. You know why? Likely, they didn't want it. And what did it lead to? So here's the next thing they didn't have. If you don't have severe accountability in your life, hey, you are high risk. You're high risk. I'm just going to tell you. So severe accountability is one of them. 
And I'm not talking about somebody who, who beats up on you all the time. I'm talking about somebody that holds you accountable. The next one, he said, each had ceased to invest in a daily personal time of prayer, scripture reading, and worship. These were guys who probably, I, I remember vividly, and, and I, I get to go a lot of places, so this will be fair because nobody will know what I'm talking about. And it's been so long ago, I don't remember really where it was either. I remember walking into a pastor's uh, office who invited me to come speak to his church. And foolishly, in my arrogance, I thought he invited me because he was excited about me coming. Not that he just didn't want to preach. Okay? So I sit in his office. The guy literally sits there, and he's like, I thought we were going to talk. I thought we were going to talk about the Bible, talk about the message. He goes, he's getting his watch. I'm looking at my watch for those of you that are listening. All right, you ready to go in there? He didn't pray with me. He didn't talk about what we were going to be talking about. We didn't talk about how each other were doing, how our families were doing, what you're struggling with, what's the state of the church. I never, he said three, four words to me. And I walked in, and when I stepped in that pulpit, it was as icy in that place as it is outside right now on cold. I don't want to say ice, James, if you're listening. Sorry about that. But guys, it was frigid. Those people were checked out. He had checked out. So you're thinking, how, Rick, can a person in full-time ministry, which we're all in full-time ministry, not have quiet time, not have prayer time, and not have time where they're worshiping the Lord and just celebrating Him? I can tell you how. It's real easy. They just decide they don't do it anymore. I got news for you. There's a lot of people that can take their faith in Jesus and phone it in especially if it's become just some cultural experience to them or, or tradition or really their vocation. I mean, do you really think there's not people out there that, 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 even, that are in ministry to get paid that that just hasn't just turned into a job to them? How many more got to fall before y'all realize that, that that's really going on? So let me ask you a question. Ask me a question. Do you have that time? I understand the busyness, especially you small children people. My time of having small children is the most exhausting it is, trying to get that under control and trying to find time to do stuff, I certainly get it. You're trying to take care of your wife. You're trying to work. You're trying to take care of your kids. By the time they go to bed at night, you are out because you're trying to be a good dad and you're trying to be a good husband. If you want to try to be a good husband and a good dad, you will be exhausted. Okay? But that's all right. But it doesn't have to be anything that's, that's going to require all this you know, sucking of time. Don't use that as an excuse. I'm telling you right now, if you will take Oswald Chambers, my utmost for his highest, and you'll read that one page at some point before you go to bed, as you get up, I prefer as you get up, but sometimes we're running, or sometime during the day, you set aside time, you're going to read that one page. I mean, I've had Oswald Chambers convince me by June, when I started in January, that I was completely lost and I needed to, to get to know Jesus. I mean, it is the most convicting, most deep, straightforward page and you'll be surprised how many times the Lord has used that man, really his wife, because he died young, and his wife found all of his sermons. She says, somebody needs to hear these, and she's the one that made the devotion. And it's been going on. It's the best one-day devotion I've ever read, and it lasts the test of time. And something like that. Or you know what? You don't have to get in some long, drawn-out you know, prayer. You don't hear people talking about it. They pray for three hours or whatever. Look, how about this? Just get up there, get on your face, and say, Lord, I love you. Lord, I need you. Protect me from my biggest enemy myself. Help me to be the husband I need to be. Help me to be the father I need to be. I take, I take my wife, and I just, I just, it's not long. And I take my wife, and I say, Lord, 
here's the needs of my wife. Here's the things I pray over her today. Then I take my daughter and I say, here's the needs she has. Here's the things going on. Lord, please, this, this, and this. Then I take my oldest son. Then I take the next son. Then I take the next son. And then, you know, I usually say, uh, I don't do it every single time. I don't know what the situation is with my youngest son. He's with you. I don't even know how all that works. But if there's a message back to him, tell him we love him. Tell him what's going on with what happened to him is still going, and we'll be together soon. And now, Lord, just put your hand on me and don't take it away from me. Let's go another day. It ain't got to be anything complicated, you know? And, and then, you, of course, you have this, which is good, you know, that, that, that you guys are attending every week, which I can't say enough about that. But these men, all who committed adultery, did not have that. How about this? 80% eighty percent failed, and this won't surprise any of you in the room, due to the result of counseling a woman. 80% of the adultery, they had a woman that they didn't have anybody in there with them, or they didn't leave the door open. They didn't bring, they didn't bring somebody, as I said, they didn't meet with, with the husband and wife together, you know, if it's a woman who was married. And what happened is they started spending significant time with a woman other than their wives. Now, now let, me, let me caution you in here, guys. Let me caution you. There's not many people in here that are in vocational ministry, but there's a lot of people in here that work with other women who aren't your wives. There's a lot of you that have couples that you may be friends with. And I'm going to tell you loud and I'm going to tell you clear. I know there's certain things that come with your job that you can't get around. I certainly understand that. But I want you to ask yourself a very serious question. Are you spending additional time with a woman who's not your wife unnecessarily? If you want to have a close, intimate friend other than your wife, a guy will do just fine. Okay? I don't, know, I don't know a man, I don't know one, if they were honest, that is spending time with another woman other than his wife, that they're not somewhere attracted to her, and they have ulterior motives. And women love for a man to want to hear about their problems, and my husband won't talk to me about this, all that garbage. Stop it now. I'm telling you it's going to have a really bad ending. And you know why I know that? Because it has a bad ending 100% of the time. And some of you know you need to stop it. You need to stop it right now. Okay? There's certainly some things, very rare. I'm fortunate as, as time, and I, but they hadn't always been this way. There are salespeople that sell us locally and nationally that may be female, and there's times they certainly need to meet with me, but they don't ever meet with me alone. Never. I will not go have lunch with them. We, if they want to have a meeting, they can come to this conference room, and all the guys from the show will sit in there with me, and I'll sit with them. They can bring other salespeople, sales manager, but never under any circumstance, no how, no way, do I ever spend time with a female salesperson alone. Never. And you don't need to either. You don't need to do it. I don't know who this woman is. In your life. Don't start talking to your neighbors and the husband's gone, and she's at home, and you're home from the office, or you have a home office, and y'all out there in the yard kicking around. I'm telling you, I'm, there's, a, I'm talking, there's, there's men, some who have ceased to come here, that, that I knew that there was a problem, and the guy said something. And just, in a, and, and just like that, I heard him mention how attractive this new neighbor was. I said, well, what, what, just go back to that. Why are you talking about how she looks? Oh, well, I mean, she's just a pretty woman. I said, you're doing it again. I know what you're doing. 
That, that's a telltale sign. That you, you didn't have to tell me that. I don't care what she looks like. Why, why would you tell me that? You know, and then you have the, the guys who'll do this kind of stuff where they get themselves in trouble. And, you, and, and, and I've seen this happen in, in front of a wife that, that has, been, has been compromised and, and actually say things like, well, I mean, if you saw her, you wouldn't blame me. What? You know, and, and so this is the kind of garbage. Now, and by the way, everybody I've mentioned will tell you they're a Christian, just so you know. Okay? That's going to lead to trouble every single time. And you know what he said? Without exception, each of the 246 men in a two-year period that betrayed their wives in ministry, every single one of them said, it will never happen to me. I, I can handle that. That kind of goes back to the thing I had to be convicted of. When I start saying things that were obviously not uh, defying what Paul said on the kind of things we, we should think on, we should think on the things that are good, and, all, and I remember saying, like an idiot, well, I mean, that movie's a little rough or whatever, but I mean, it don't bother me. You know, I can handle it. And I heard, and, and Jesus was like, but it should bother you. you you're, you're ushering me into this garbage and it don't bother you? Well, I guess you and I are as close as we need to be. It should bother you. And if your attitude to not committing adultery on your wife is we'll see, like we talked about last week, or I can handle it, you're doomed. The adversary is laughing his head off at you, and you're going to fail. I promise you. So that is the ambush of woman. You got to know what's going on. You got to know what situation not to put yourself in. And it said all these men were high risk because of these things that they were not doing. Everything the, the everything they did was to ensure that they would get involved with a woman. They weren't doing anything to ensure they would. They were doing everything to ensure that they would. And I thought it was kind of cool when it says you know we, you've heard the great things about Billy Graham and how his staff uh, handled this. But so one of the things I want to hit before we get to that, here's the things I want you to, to think about with the, with the ambushes that we just said. Do you spend personal time with the Lord in prayer, reading scriptures at least three times a week? Are there at least two, one or two men in your life to whom you've built a friendship based on trust? Uh, you, have, you have them in confidence and accountability. In other words, you have somebody close enough. That means you can't con them that loves you enough to get in your face if they need to. Are you spending significant time with any attractive woman other than your wife, a woman you work with, a woman you counsel, etc.? Are you absolutely sure that you will finish strong? So he says, if you go back and, and you do this list again, he said the simple answer that is necessary is to be on the preferred list, if you can answer those questions in the right way. He says, so here's what we do. You should have a yes to time with the Lord. You should have a yes on have that accountability, brother. You should have a no on spending significant time with any attractive woman other than your wife? And are you absolutely sure you'll finish strong? The correct answer to that, by the way, is no. If you're absolutely sure without any effort you're going to finish strong, you're already dead. Because you know what all these men said? This won't happen to me. So anyway, this was something that um, uh, Millie uh, Denart, or Dernert, that worked with Billy Graham for, for 40 years. Here's what she said on the ethics of Mr. Graham Cliff Bar Barrows and George Beverly Shea and the rest of the male members of the Billy Graham team. She said, I've always appreciated from a moral point of view how the men have been in their attitude toward the secretaries. The doors are always left open. 
They are, uh, there is a high regard for the lack of any kind of privacy where a boss and a secretary are involved. At times, I thought they were going a little too far, that it wasn't necessary, but I'm glad they did it, especially today. They have kept everything above reproach. When you're working on a long-term basis with the same person, constantly in hotels, where the wife is not there and the secretary is, that is a highly explosive situation. You have to take precautions. I've always respected the way they've handled it. It has always been beautifully done. And that's from a woman who was watching these men. They were above reproach. And, and at times she said, I thought they were going a little far. But you know what that usually means? If you're willing to go a little far with it, you probably won't fail. An extreme opponent requires an extreme defense strategy. And women are a strong opponent. And they always have been. Okay? I don't think I have to tell you all that. The next ambush is the ambush of money. Now, the ambush of money, this, I really laughed out loud because we were talking about people who don't have their money in, in the right place. And he does the funny joke about the hurricane, but I won't get into all that, but that's in there. It's pretty funny. But there, he, said, he said, I know a guy with a Ph.D. in theology from one of the leading theological institutions in the world. He's also a convicted felon who is currently sitting in a federal prison for ripping off a number of savings and loans in a, in, in a real estate scam. He said, the interesting thing about this guy is that he has systematic theology wired, and he can explain to you all the nuances of biblical passages, either in Hebrew or Greek. But he currently sits in prison because he had a love for money. That was his weakness. He said he didn't start out scamming money in real estate deals. He started by fooling around with deductions on his income tax return. Hello? He started fooling around on deductions that were not legal or not truthful on his income tax return. Does that, does that make anybody uncomfortable? We, we, we don't claim anything that's not true. We pay what we're supposed to pay. And so he started off saying, I'll compromise my finances in a little place. And before you know it, he said, nothing big, a few hundred dollars here or there. He never had a problem with cutting just a few corners on his return. And when he got his real estate license, he never found a deal that he couldn't fix with a little creative financing. So how many of you are in lines of work where people ask you to compromise things and sales you know, hey, we got this product. We all know what we got in it. And this guy's just at, you know, we, we know this. And, but if I tell you if I can get them to buy it for this, I may pull a little bit over here to me and I still turn in my profit. Well, I'm going to claim this on taxes. Not really true, but no harm. The government's evil and, you know, they're going to get all of our money. And I certainly, you know, I, I, have, I, I have no joy in, in the tax rate that I'm taxed at. I think it's immoral and it's wrong. But it hadn't changed, so that's what I have to pay. And I pay what I'm supposed to pay. And, you know, as long as I'm in Babylon, I'm a, I'm a good citizen, a law-abiding citizen, unless they ask me to, you know, reject God, then, then I'm going to get in trouble. But I'm not going to look for trouble. Wise as the serpent, gentle as the dove. So he talks about Ananias and Sapphira, and we talked about that, all of you that were here in the book of Acts that studied that. But some of you weren't here for that, so I'll give you a, a little run. I laughed really hard after this because he said, I hear people talking all the time that we got to get back to the church acts. And, uh, and, and Farrar says, now, there's certainly some truth to that. He goes, but I noticed they never mentioned Ananias and Sapphira on getting back to the book of Acts. I don't think, you be careful asking to get back to the book of Acts. Uh, how about this? Uh, if you said you give something, boy, you, you better give it. Uh, so Ananias, what it was, was what? It was a love of money. 
and I'll, I'll try to put, he, he comes in and he tells the church that he and his wife, Sapphira, had sold a piece of property and uh, they, they didn't keep any back for themselves and they gave it to the church, every bit of it, and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter says, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back some of the price of the land? Now, be clear, there was no demand that Ananias and Sapphira give 100% of what they sold to the church. The issue was they said that's what they were going to do. Now, I'm going to make a longer story short. Now, the reason why they did that also showed a flaw in their, in, in, in their conduct. They were jealous of Barnabas because Barnabas had sold some land, and he had actually given every bit of it, and everybody made a fuss about it, about how great Barnabas was, and we all need to be like Barnabas. Now, this is typical. They loved money so much, they wanted to get the accolade that Barnabas got, but not actually give what Barnabas gave. And when that happened, God struck them dead. Back to going back to the Church of Acts. How would you like that if you told the church that you were tithing 10% of everything you made, and you maybe were tithing 8%, and God killed you? Y'all want to get on that? Y'all want to get back under that authority? Huh? Well, you be get your numbers right. <laughs> Are you tithing? Yes. 10%? Yes. <laughs> Gross or net? <laughs> and so, so, I mean, you know, you don't, you, you don't fool around with this kind of stuff. And, but they were deceivingly, I mean, that, th this, was, this was deception from the beginning. They intended this all along. And you hear Peter say, why have you allowed Satan to trick you like this and come here and tell us this lie? He's giving him an out. He said, now I'm going to ask you again about this land. Absolutely, we gave every bit of it. Dead. So then his wife shows up, no surprise, three hours later. And so, so she, comes, she comes in. She comes in and Peter says, don't you wish somebody would have, don't you know she wished somebody would have said, hey, FYI, if they ask you about the land. <laughs> In a minute, you're going to say, where's my husband? And it's not good. <laughs> and so, so she comes in and says, hey, this is what your husband told us. Is this the deal? Yes, dead. Dead. And, and all of this was not because they had money, not because they should have given 100% of what they had, because they pretended to be more sacrificial than they really were. And the reason why they didn't want to be as sacrificial as they were is because they had been scamming people and they wanted to keep it and spend it on themselves. And there's certainly nothing wrong with them keeping some money for themselves. What was wrong is that they were more interested in looking good than actually doing good. Do you think this event was the first time, for our ask this, that this couple had ever lied about something related to their finances? Probably not. Now, we don't know that whole story, but if you just look at their character, how many of you know anybody, or you remember yourself, and I certainly remember myself, I mean, we talked about this this week, and, and it's a sad truth. Everybody was talking about, you know, 33 years ago, the Challenger crash happened. It was horrible, and everybody in here was going, hey, you know, that's one of those things, you remember exactly where you were when the Challenger crashed. I have no idea where I was. It was 1986. I don't even remember 1986. And so... What I'm saying is, I don't recall ever when I was doing things that were sinful that I only did it once. You know, it, no, it was who I was. You know, if you caught me doing one thing, I had done it more times than that. So I think it's pretty safe to say, since he killed them, that Ananias and Sapphira had an issue with not being completely upfront about their money. 
And, and this was a final straw. And then, of course, so the, the deal about money is this. Like we said before, currency in and of itself is neutral. But our love of money is what is evil. And, and look, just get the attitude right. I've even heard idiots say, well, that's my money. I, I earned that money. With what? The abilities that God gave you? Do you really think God is sitting up there going, I tell you, if Burgess don't get his 10% in this month, I don't know what we're going to do. <laughs> and then the angel said, well, you know, that's his money. It's not my money. It's not your money. And there's nothing wrong with having money as long as you don't care about it. That's why the young rich ruler, Jesus said, I'm dealing with your problem. He wasn't, I mean, we talked about there's wealthy men of the Bible. One of them just made the finishing, I mean, a couple of them just made the finishing strong list. Job and Abraham were not paupers. Okay, but they were solid, and they finish strong. They make they make the preferred list. Okay, but it's the way that they handled their money, and that the way they felt about their money, and the way they made their money. Money's evil if you make it at the expense of somebody else, or you're cutting corners, or you're sinning to do it. Money's evil if you're hoarding it and you're not willing to give it. Money's evil if it means so much to you that you are consumed with it. And I'm gonna tell you this when we get to the ne neglected family as our final thing. Your family right now would take less money and more of you. And I know a lot of guys that think their sole purpose in life for their family and for their wife is to make money. And I can already tell you that your wife and your children are neglected and unhappy. If that's what you think your sole role is. It's certainly part of it. So the next one is the ambush is the ambush of a neglected family. How about this? He, this is when Steve Farrar was still single. This is why this is so profound. He was asked about going into full-time ministry. He said, what is your greatest fear about going into ministry? And he said, this is my greatest fear. And he was not married at the time. Being successful in ministry and losing my family. That's Steve Farrar talking about that as a single guy. Because you know why? He said, I'd seen it over and over again. He said, every pastor I knew, he says, at, at, the, point, at, at the point I had seen their kids, every pastor he knew, Every one of their kids had left the faith when they left the house. And he said, look, there's a difference in being spiritual and being weird. He said, sometimes I look at something, he goes, some people think being weird is being spiritual. I love that. I can hear him saying it, if you've ever heard Steve before. And he talks about this guy named, named C.T. Studd. And he said he left his family and left his wife for like 16 years, I forget the number of years, and went to China. And he certainly, you know, did some work in China, but, but he lost his family. And he goes, and I can hear some of y'all out there thinking, and I certainly can understand, he says, that, that this was more important than his family. He said, I'm sorry, that's not spiritual, that's just weird. He said, it's better, he said, because a lot of people say it's also dangerous to go on mission and all that. He said, but if you look at the Bible, he said, first of all, you see that all of the, the, the apostles who were married, they, they took their wives with them. You also saw that Jesus, the family he had, were the disciples, and he never did ministry without them. He took them with him. He says, so look, if you feel called to the mission field or you feel called to go to some corner of the earth, take your family with you. He said, because it's better to face adversity together as a family than to neglect, to neglect one another through a distorted understanding of Christ's demands on the family. He said, we must get this right. Now, an example of what he's talking about, we know if you have your Bible or something with your Bible on it, let's go to Luke 14.6. Luke 14.6, and this is a very popular uh, and controversial uh, discussion 
uh, from, from Jesus. And I can remember my own father struggling with this when it was taught, not fully understanding this. And Jesus says this, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And he said, that, some people take that, and, and it's distorted. Some people, he said, but I, I would take you and also point you to Genesis 22 with Abraham and Isaac. And he says, what, what, what both of these stories are teaching us is that your family cannot be an idol. Your children can't be an idol. Your wife can't be an idol. They don't, they're, they're not ahead of God in your life. And if you want to be a great husband and a great father, put God where he's supposed to be. And you actually become a husband and a father like he's called you to do through his power. Anybody that puts their family ahead of God is really not a good husband. They're really not a good father. But here's the problem. That doesn't mean you abandon your wife and you abandon your family in order to say, well, i got to serve the Lord. He's never required that. What he wants to know is, Are, is your family an idol ahead of me? He wanted to know Abraham. Is Isaac your idol? And he wasn't. He was willing to do and have faith that whatever God called him to be. He said, Children's and, children and wives are not idols but they should be in the right place. D.L. Moody. Is anybody prepared to say that D.L. Moody didn't know how to do ministry? D.L. Moody said, I believe the family was established long before the church and that my duty is to my family first. I am not to neglect my family. And you think about this. Malachi 4.6, the last thing that said, when the Lord goes silent for 400 years, in Malachi 4.6, he said, he will restore the heart's of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the land with a curse. So the last thing that God says for 400 years before we get John the Baptist and Zechariah, he says he's going to restore the hearts of the children to their fathers. And you think, wow, what are we talking about? So John the Baptist then comes on the scene, and he was not only the forerunner of Jesus Christ, but he preached a message that will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children. You're saying, Rick, what are you talking about? Look at Luke chapter 1, Luke chapter 1, verses 13 through 17. This is really cool. So we know that Zechariah heard. He said, the angel said, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayers have been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John, and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. Now, this is the first time God's spoken 400 years. For he will be great before the Lord. He must not drink wine or strong drink. He'll be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. Now listen to this. And he will turn the many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for, uh, for the Lord a people prepared. Part of what John's going to do is get the fathers back in the right relationship with their children and to get the children of God back in the right relationship with their heavenly father. So, so what Malachi says at the end, he's talking about John the Baptist. The, mes the message you're going to hear next is going to feature this thing. And it did. Now, we certainly know that also the Bible's clear about this. 1 Timothy, look at 1 Timothy, or write this down if you don't have it, 5.8. And, uh, and this is really straightforward. This is Paul writing to young Timothy. We heard about this a little bit this weekend too, which was great. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for the members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So here's the Bible saying, let, let me tell you something about your family now. They better be provided for and they may, better be taken care of. And if you're not doing that, 
you know, if some guy says, well, I've got to go up to the mountaintop and I've got to go talk to the Lord and your children are starving and your wife has no clothing and they don't have what they're supposed to have, you're worse than a pagan because you don't have this in the proper order. To worship me is to take care of your wife. It is to take care of your children. And if you don't do that, you're worse than a pagan. And then uh, look, look at this too, and this is, this is going to be rough, but we're going we'll to end on it. 1 Timothy 3, 4 and 5. Now this is talking about people who will be qualified to be overseers or in church leadership. Look at one of the things it says. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. Look at verse 5. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? And Steve Farrar says something on this verse, which I agree with him. He said he believes in the Western church that this is the most abused and ignored commandment in the Bible. He says, a man not meeting the needs of his family is disqualified from ministry. And he said, and a man is only given a public ministry after he has first proven his leadership abilities within his own family. He said, this is one of the single most violated principles in the church. How many times have you seen it? And I think sometimes, and, and of course being a person who is, I, I, I had the sin of divorce in my life, and I certainly understand I've been redeemed and reconciled, and I'm certainly not the man of two wives. It's very disrespectful to my wife for anybody to say that. You know, uh, and, and so, but, but, the, but this is a situation. If the church interprets that a man of one wife include, disqualifies me, I'm good with that. But let me tell you what I don't like is when we also get a bunch of guys who don't manage their household well and don't have their house in order, they get to serve. Now, I got a problem with that. If we're going to adhere to all the standards, whether we agree that interpretation is right or not, that's not for me to say. If I didn't want to be in that situation, I should have never committed the sin of divorce. And I take responsibility for that, and I repent of that. That, I, that, that, that I, 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 something that God calls holy, I treated poorly when I was lost. However, and if, that, if that's an earthly repercussion, that's fine. I got other things I can do for the church, that's fine. But I, what, what we can't do as a church is to say we won't let that happen, but we'll let a guy go ahead and serve whose house is completely out of control who neglects his family, who doesn't take care of his wife, his children are a bunch of idiots, and suddenly this guy, and suddenly this guy gets to be in leadership, but the guy who was divorced one time, we'll be sure we won't let him in. If we're going to stick to all of it, let's get it all. And we got people in leadership in churches that violate what Paul said to Timothy, and we let it go. And then when they leave their family for another woman or for another man, we all stand around and look stupid. You know what most people come and say is, you knew that guy should have never been in that position. You knew he wasn't solid. You knew his marriage was in trouble. You knew his relationship with his children was in trouble. You knew he neglected his family, and you let him lead anyway. And the damage that kind of stuff does when it rears its ugly head is paramount. And so, and see, the reason why people get away with that, sometimes that's something that you can hide. And I love this. The qualifications for having a public ministry is not giftedness. Here comes conviction on me right here big time. The qualification for ministry is not giftedness. It's proven character. There's a lot of gifted people that aren't, don't have good character. We ever seen those? Raise your hand if you've been around those. Yeah. I could be that guy. I remember a guy from the Billy Graham ministry, and he told me something I'll never forget. He said, hey, I heard you teach and whatever. You're certainly raw, but obviously God's giving me some communication skills. Obviously, look what you do for a living. He said, but I'm going to give you some caution now. I want you to speak less and pray more. 
I said, what are you talking about? He said, because let me tell you, I know people like you. You can pull it off. Ill-prepared, doing God knows what. And if we put you up in the pulpit or give you a microphone, you'll do something that'll be okay because you'll lean on the gift. You won't lean on God. He says, so here's what I want you to do. Don't abuse the gift. Don't lean on the gift. Be prepared. Have a sick work ethic. Get in the Word of God. Be on your face before the Lord. And if you've got so many speaking engagements, you can't do that, then you cancel some of them. Pray more, speak less. Because if not, you'll lean on the gift, not on God. And that, those are terrifying words. And I'll be honest with you, there's been times in my life where I was up there leaning on the gift and I was not prepared and had not spent proper time with the Lord, but that's not going to happen again. Jesus took many speaking opportunities, but he always took his disciples with him. He said, if you want to be part of the Great Commission, and we'll leave on this, it's got to start at home. If you can't disciple your own family, how in the world can you disciple somebody else? How about this? He said, don't be intimidated by stupid expectations from your work, from your job, or even your ministry. Your family doesn't need more things. They need you. Your family doesn't need more things. Your family, my family, needs me. Go back to chapter 4 in my wife's book. And one of the darkest days our family's ever seen. Not the only dark day, but the darkest. She said when that happened, nobody could replace my husband and nobody could replace the children's father. And I was away. But I got back. Because you know why? I couldn't just call it and say, hey, man, somebody go over and check on them. That's, that's rough. i got to finish this out or I'll get home when I can. You know, And I got this and people expect me to do that and whatever got this. What we got to do is we prioritize our family. And if our work asks us to, to be sinful in our neglect of our family, if our ministry asks us to be sinful and neglect our family. I remember laughing one time when a guy told me, he said, I remember literally saying that I needed to get back up to church to learn how to be a good father as my kids were wondering where I was going. Sometimes the best way to be a good father is be with your kids. You know, sometimes the best way to be a good husband is be with your wife. You don't always have to go off to learn how to do it. Just do it. Nothing replaces time. You know, people say it's not the quality, quantity of time, it's quality. That is a lie from some guy who feels guilty because he don't ever see his kids. No, quantity's big. Quantity's big from a man who hadn't always got that right. It's big. So, as we close in prayer, these are the ambushes that we first must navigate around to even have a chance of finishing strong. Take these ambushes that have been put before us. I want you to look at your life and see one where you may be struggling. Let's get on our face before the Lord. And let's prepare so that because under His authority, we are aware when the ambush is coming. We have a sensitivity to the Holy Spirit. And because of His Word and what He's called us to do, we know how to combat it and not be destroyed by it. Let's pray. Lord, thank You for today. Thank you for these convicting words uh, from you through Steve. And thank you for us having access to this and grinding it out as men of God. And I pray, Lord, that we take these things and we're not afraid to assess where we're doing well and then fix where we're doing poorly. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks, guys. Amen.